What's going on, y'all? How y'all doing? Welcome back to the 1025 Podcast. This is episode eight. I'm Jordan, along with Ashanti and Kristen. And in this episode, Ashanti is going to be our moderator. Ashanti, take it away. Hello, you guys. Nice to see everybody. Today, we'll be talking about the Cuties Texas indictments, the Megan Thee Stallion SNL performance, and the ongoing Tory Lanez case, um, media bias and polarized politics, and voting. So firstly, I'm sure we've all heard about this cuties indictment. It's been really strange, but basically the Texas grand jury is um, accusing cuties of showing lewd material and the over-sexualization of um, adults that are under the age of 18. And while I don't necessarily think that was necessary, I think the main point is that we miss the potency of this coming of age film. Do you guys think that they should have indicted them? Do you guys think we should be charging this film as much as we are? Personally, my personal opinion, I feel like they shouldn't have indicted nobody on this film because no person you know, surrounding this film. Main reason why is because I feel like art cannot be, you know, like construed and all that type of stuff. Like people, the artists should literally just make it and put it out there you know what i'm saying without i mean of course a lot of great art is controversial but i feel like they're doing too much you get what i'm saying yeah yeah i actually wanted to read um what they put the, what they stated in the actual indictment papers um the texas the tyler county grand jury which is a county in texas has indicted netflix as an entity and it was filed on september 23rd for the lewd exhibition of genitals or pubic area of a clothed or partially clothed child who is younger than 18 years of age at the time of the visual material was created, which opposed to the prudent interest of sex. So basically, um, they charged them with the film having too much sex appeal. And I think they missed the nuances of the film. A lot of people have been criticizing the creator because the film apparently has no nuances. However, I feel like these people just look at the actual panel that Netflix put out and they clicked it and they expected something different than what Netflix was marketing. They expected an hour and 45 minutes of just, just extra sex appeal and content. However, the film is very nuanced. It, it, um, it's a multi-generational conversation of what it means to be a, a woman and exhibit femaleness in the digital age. And I personally think that anyone who is criticizing this film hasn't even watched it. Did you guys actually see how they marketed it? That's why everyone's getting mad, but they haven't watched the film. Yeah, I watched the trailer and it was very... Mm. It's turned me off watching the film. Now, I've seen the, uh, the posters of the film. Poster. posters that were made for the French release. I think it was at like the Cannes Film Festival. It didn't have like the very, you know, uh, girls in those positions. You know what I'm saying? It was yeah. just like three girls running through the street. When Netflix yeah. brought it over, that's when they was like, okay, I want one girl to squat. I want another girl to be looking very attractive. So that, I feel like that's the thing that a viewer watched and they already had a fixed like consensus on right. That's exactly what happened, Jordan. They they saw that panel and they clicked it and thought for the next one hour and 45 minutes, I'm going to be petrified. The exactly. story so layered, it was done so well and it resonated with me as a young woman who's grown, well, probably you, Kristen, who's grown up in the digital age. 
it's just essentially you're trying to emulate the things that are being pushed on you all the time and we do them in unhealthy ways but it it's disgusting that everyone wants to care about it now and they're charging the film with pedophilia however the film is through the perspective of a 13 year old girl and the woman who directed it um actually got the consensus or interviewed a variety of I think it was like 200 um, preteen children about how do you feel growing up in this technological age we are always being charged with images of what you should look like yeah. and we created the film through that perspective and that's what happened and if adults are getting mad they need to sit down and have a long conversation about the things we're allowing our children to see and be around like uh, it's just I'm being serious it's just ridiculous you can't get mad at her for sharing personally what also um and what is intertwined not only her story but our stories essentially and if people are mad we, we need to fix what is the deeper issue essentially this film was a critique of the hypersexualization of young girls it did not actually hypersexualize them it was a perspective film and we disregarded it absolutely and another thing that a lot of people kind of don't really understand about this film is that this is a french film this is very different. French films are very different compared to American films, you know, where they appeal to a mainstream demographic. You know what I'm saying? If this was released in America, then yeah, it would, I mean, of course, I feel like not a lot of people would think about it as much, but since it's from like this other country, people are like, okay, what the hell are they showing over here? You know what I'm saying? This um, I mean, of course, France is in Europe, and this is coming from the same country that enjoys Game of Thrones, which has sex and violence every episode. But I feel like they don't really know, American moviegoers, they don't know the certain themes that are portrayed in films over at France because they're not really used to that being brought over in America. They're not used to American filmmakers telling these type of stories. Yeah, precisely that. So if you think it was an American film, how do you think um, the plot would have, well, have you guys even watched the film? I've seen certain like clips of <laughs> Okay, so in the marketing, did you actually, um, did they market the girls like individually or did it only show the scenes of them dancing? Because out of all 145 minutes, they only dance and do all that lewd stuff for about eight minutes. That shows me that these people haven't watched the film. Right. So it mainly just showed them dancing. Yeah. It mainly just showed them dancing. Yeah, and that was only a fraction. So do you if it was an American film, how do you think it would have been produced or marketed? Because I, we othered this film and its creator essentially. But if it was an American film, keep talking, Jordan. Okay, so I feel like if they uh if america made this film it would be more of like a pg sort of like a disney channel type of thing where they would try to water down a lot of the themes that were happening in the story like you know being a woman growing up you know what i'm saying i don't think they would tell this story as raw and as mature as the director wanted it to be yeah i actually disagree because i think america likes shock value you well, see the tmz yeah. mtv etc we yeah. just like a story that pops yeah you're yeah. right you're right yeah definitely this is an interesting come of coming of age film one that i'm not used to i grew up loving like 13 going on 30 and the most recent ladybird film it was pretty 
not necessarily realistic, but it was more sanguine, more sappy, more like, I'm a teenager, I'm a preteen girl, I'm trying to be a young woman, oh my gosh, like all that lame stuff. But this film, like Jordan said, it was very genuine, it was vulnerable. It showed the complexity, the complexities of these young women and people just can't take it. They want us to just be so blank, just 2D. Yeah. I love the fact that she created this film. It resonated with me, I enjoyed it a lot. I watched it from beginning to end, and it, another reason why I don't think people really actually watch the film when are critiquing it, because at the end, we see her recognize um, what she's essentially doing, what she, the main character, that she's just putting a mask on to fit in, but not really being herself. So towards the end of the film, they're at this dance competition, which is probably what you guys saw. And in the middle of it, she starts crying. And it's just really realist, um, kind of like a realist thing where she looks around at the audience. She's just like, this isn't what I want to do. So she runs back home and at the end of the film we, film, we see her jump roping with some neighborhood kids and that's it, that's all. She goes back to her home and she comes back into herself and not this hyper-sexualized version of herself. So that proves to me people didn't really watch the film because we see it's layered and it's a full circle movie. Yeah, and, and they instead wanted to jump on the bandwagon of hating this film. Yeah. But she, there was a lot of self-awareness and self-realization, which is what I don't think we see a lot in American coming-of-age films. Yeah. It, does, it has a full circle moment, but the characters don't necessarily change for the better. You kind of see what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 But um, I, they're charging Netflix as an entity, so I don't think the actual director is going to have any criminal charges put against her. I think this case is more symbolic than it is um, actually fueled by questioning whether or not pedophilia is running rampant in America. It's more symbolic because we are in a politically tense time. And I think they only did this for the symbolism. I really hope that they, the director is in charge of anything. And I really hope, because the fine um, for a corporation um, with a criminal charge like this would only be $20,000, but still it's, it's too symbolic. They shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. We're not asking necessary questions. Do you guys have anything else to say about this? Not really. No. Okay. So our next topic of conversation is Megan Thee Stallion's SNL performance and the ongoing um, Toy Lanez case. So firstly, I'd like to ask you guys, did you actually watch her SNL performance? Yes. Yep. You watched it? Okay. So do you think that it was, do you think that people should be using their bodies to push a political message? You want to go first, Kristen? <laughs> yes, actually. Um, I don't think we should be using our bodies to push political message. However, I believe she did it. I, I believe that she knows that's the only way people listen. Because people aren't listening when she portrayed herself as this college girl who's a law student and everything. People weren't listening. But people were listening when she was up on stage. Yeah. Um, what were you about to say, Jordan? Well, and I'm, I'm going to tread lightly on this one. I was talking to you about this performance a few days ago, right? And me personally, I do agree with Kristen saying that we people shouldn't use their bodies to do a political message. However, when I watched this performance and she has the vocal snippet of 
uh, Malcolm X saying, you know, the most disrespected, unprotected woman in America is the black women. Woman, I was like, okay, I, I, I like that. You know, I like that little ad. Beyonce did that in Lemonade, right? Thing is, though, when you do that and then the next scene later, you're dancing very provocatively and, you know, all that type of stuff. It's like not a lot of people will really take your message seriously. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying, oh, she has to be like all oh, this, you know, you know, studious, you know, woman. She wears, you know, covers her body and all that stuff. And you, nah, no, you can come across to me as just your authentic self without trying to push or uh, force a message. Get what I'm saying? I felt like during this performance, and this is just my opinion, she was trying to force a message rather than just, how can I say this? Rather than just being her. And I get that the woman on stage, that's her personality, but with a topic like this, I feel like she should have handled it better. That's just me. All right, so we're definitely um, finding ourselves asking a lot from these artists during this intense socio-political climate right now. There is a lot going on and we are demanding them to speak out. Megan, um, I think her performance was just fine. She's using her resources, which is essentially her body and her um, performance and her art. And I can't necessarily get mad about the way that she does it because we all have this conversation with each other. It's the fact that black female rappers are kind of trapped in a box. So yeah. with that being, she was just using the resources at hand. But one thing that made me extremely happy is that um, a lot of black YouTubers specifically um, black feminine YouTubers were asking um, these artists or like kind of proposing the question to us, do we want more sophisticated content from them? Do we want them to actually speak out in a meaningful way about things they sort of sweep under the rug? Because the discourse of um, intersectionality has been going on since reconstruction or post-slavery. We could look at Harriet Jacobs, the, life, um, the story of a slave girl. And we're asking these artists and black women in general to present their stories to us, to present the fact that because I'm a black and I'm also a woman, these are the things that I have to go through. Yeah. So what, that, what I'm trying to, um, this leads me to say that Megan Thee Stallion um, not only used that, did that performance, but she also came out with a New York Times article giving her testimony to what actually happened to her. Because for the longest people have just been proposing like, oh, she didn't speak out because she didn't want him to get exiled or she didn't speak out. We don't really know what happened. How could she have gotten shot and like all that stuff? But now we have hard um, literature about what happened to her and she has contributed um, in a meaningful way. Uh, for me personally, I think she has because I can't necessarily get mad about the performance because she's tending to um, that audience However, in the New York Times article, she was tending to the general American people. Not everyone's listening to Megan Thee Stallion. Like she's popping, but that article was more potent to me. And I wish people would focus on that more. Even though it came after the performance, because at first I was kind of like, oh, again, like we're, we're doing this again, like seriously, kind of like what Jordan said. But I'm actually really proud of her for um, writing that article. And um, yeah. Um, so lastly, we kind of just talked about this. Was the performance um, appropriate considering the severity of the situation? Hmm. Like considering how severe this was in context with the whole Breonna Taylor case, like how? Yeah, I, I just feel like 
even this this whole situation from you know Tory Lanez dropping that album to Meg doing this whole you know uh, performance on Saturday Night Live. I feel like a lot of this stuff is kind of manufactured in a way. You know what I'm saying? Because I don't, and and I understand that celebrity beef is usually very manufactured. Okay, Jay Z cheats on Beyonce. What does Beyonce do? Drop lemonade. What's his response? Drop 444. To me, that was very like, okay, y'all kind of doing album sales off of pain, but what else? Saying with Tori, I'm like, okay, you drop this album, you're profiting off of pain. And then Meg is like, okay, I'm going to do this performance where I basically do the same thing I do many times. And it's, it's like she was trying to, it, it felt forced to me, right? Now, granted, in light of the Breonna Taylor situation, I feel like Meg should have just, like, maybe made a video where it was just like, hey, this is what happened to me, just as for Breonna Taylor. But I, I feel like she shouldn't have got on Saturday Night Live and started shaking her butt and doing all that type of stuff. That's just my opinion. Yeah. Did you have anything else to, um, did you have anything to say about that, Kristen? Um, I... It's a weird time. Yeah. It's it's weird. What were you about to say? I don't even know. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, so I was lastly I'm just gonna finish off this topic with this. Twenty twenty it has definitely been like for reform and especially reconceptualizing how we how we are politically engaged. However, I don't I don't expect too much from these artists. We have been since like about twenty fifteen with the videos I've been watching and creators I've been interacting with, we've been kind of demanding these artists to be vocal about the things that are happening to them and not just sweep it under the rug, mainly for the purpose so people can relate to it and so we can have civil discourse. It's weird that this would have happened to someone who's so high profile, but it did. And it can be generalized to how, um, to the issues that are happening within our own community. So I think given the political and social tension right now, what she did was more than enough. And that New York Times article just topped it off very well. But at the same time, what, what are people still going to be infusing their art with a political message next year? Or is this just a fad of 2020? Like wh how long do you think this is going to last? But I, I can't necessarily say that it won't last for Megan because she is a victim of, um, of violence essentially. So I don't know how this is going to transform her career, but do you think um, how artists communicate politically from now is going to be changed from now on? Like whether or not they politicize their work. Do you, do you understand the question kind of? Yeah. Do you think it's going to be changed because of 2020 and our expectations for artists to speak out? I feel like it's not because there are many artists who this year, they've made a political message. For example, the, the rapper Little Baby made the song called The Bigger Picture in light of the George Floyd incident. And then I read an article a few weeks ago where it was like, he's not going to make songs like that anymore. You know what I'm saying? He just wanted to make this sing, drop this single, say what he had to say, and then, you know, go back to rapping about all the other stuff. Now, as far as, you know, artists doing all that me personally i don't go to artists for my political agendas and messages and all that i usually go to like you know the news and stuff 
But I feel like that's still going to be a recurring theme in a lot of people's music. Kendrick Lamar is always going to rap about the Black experience in his music. J. Cole is always going to rap about being an underdog in North Carolina and, you know, that biracial, you know, um, ideology that's in his head. I don't go to artists like Drake to talk about police brutality. You know what I'm saying? I don't go to Beyonce with, uh, even though she made a great body of work with Lemonade talking about, you know, the Black experience in America. That's just me personally, you know. But I do think that this is still going to be a core factor in a lot of artists' music over the years. Yeah, I think this is, I think we have higher expectations for artists now because at the end of the day, they're, they're humans just like us. And at the end mm -hmm. of the day, they're compromising intersections, which is what we saw with Megan Thee Stallion. So I think that 2020 has definitely been a pivotal moment in I'm interested to see and how they engage in politics next year. Kind of like what Jordan said, I don't expect too much from these, from these, um, from these celebrities. They're not necessarily my idols in a way, I guess. Yeah. I don't expect very much for them. They're entertainment. They're entertainment. Should we be in civil discourse with them? Should we expect them to? No, not necessarily, but I do appreciate it. Yeah. I think the one reason why we expect so much of them is because we don't want them to be so disconnected from where they came from. Because at the end of the day, you're still human just like us. You still bleed just like us. So you can't yeah. act like you're better than us just because you have more money or more status. Yeah. And a lot of these artists, um, they make way for appeasing other people rather than actually sticking to their actual values just for a check. Yeah. yeah. And people do. Girl, I would do it too for a check. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of crazy stuff for a check. But yeah, I'm interested to see how things evolve after this, um, after this, after 2020 and how we demand, um, how we demand things from the artists. Did you guys have anything else to say or? Nope. All right. So our next topic is media bias and polarized politics. Now, before we talk about um, how media is essentially, how media reigns over politics a lot of the time, I wanted to talk about um, polarized politics. We understand that um, American democracy or representative democracy is not necessarily, it has an innate function, but it isn't inherently a two-party system. We have the Republican, um, we have the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and we also have a multitude of other um, parties that fall under the third party, like the Progressives, the Green Green Party, um, the Libertarian. Libertarian. Yeah, um, and even those that spurred from the Prohibition Movement, like the list is endless, like there's hundreds and hundreds. It's freaking crazy. But the way that these candidates campaign, it's essentially focused on mainly the two parties and sometimes one of the third parties like the progressives. So, and we also have to understand that in a lot of these um, cities, we only have one person representing us. Whereas in like a European country, depending on how people vote, they could have multiple representatives from one district. Like we have one district, um, a winner takes all one district type of government, I guess. Whereas in a European country, depending on how people vote, they could have a, a multiple. They could have one Republican, like I'm transferring it to American politics. They could have one Republican, one Libertarian, maybe even progressive, maybe like just throw a couple people in there. So with this winner takes all system, I feel like it's polarized people and it's caused people to not nece necessarily understand that democracy is meant to evolve. And because of that, 
um, we have these like crazy campaigns and like where media is just very like done out of self-interest in a way and only focuses on those two parties. Right. So one thing I wanted to ask you guys was when did you guys first hear about um, third party politics or like any third party in general? It happened around when I was like in 11th grade. When I was in U.S. history and we were talking about, you know, the Democratic Republican Party, talking about, and yeah, when I was in uh, ninth grade, when Donald Trump was running for president, ultimately won. That I felt was kind of weird, the third party, because I was thinking to myself, okay, what makes this different from Democratic and Republican? What, you know what I'm saying, what's their job? Are Can they, you know, actually run for president? All that type of stuff. So that those were like the ideas that I was um, the questions I will say that were in my head during that time period. All right. For me, it was during the election of our former president, Barack Obama. Yeah. All right. Um, how so? Because I was seeing his rankings compared to the other presidential candidates. And I noticed there was a third party candidate as well. And I was kind of confused. Yeah. So we understand that in general, people don't necessarily talk about the third party or even necessarily proponents for them taking over. But as I said before, democracy is meant to evolve based off the people's needs. So I feel like since there is a political dichotomy, we only focus on the fact that there can only ever be Republican and only ever be Democratic. Well, are infused with like um, the third party ideas, especially more progressive and green ideas, we have to understand that we can vote for who we want to. Yeah, but he's talking, a lot of the times they're stigmatized because, you know, people, especially with the whole socialist thing, we are in an era where like, if you say you're socialist, get D, like get out, get out. but most um, most Democratic or Republican parties believe that it, a vote for the third party candidate is a wasted vote. And that's a lot of the reason why people just settle for whoever. Yeah, yeah. And that's especially, that's also why I mentioned the winner take all system, because I feel like if we implemented where we had multiple representatives in like a district that's usually one person representative, it would encourage people to say like, I have a variety of political ideas. However, I don't necessarily have to stick to just one party. You do kind of see what I'm saying? And when yeah. people say the wasted vote, it's not necessarily a wasted ideal. It's not necessarily a wasted ideal. And I sometimes irritates me when people say that because I understand it is a wasted vote. However, we can't necessarily, I feel like in the next 100 years, the, the way that we think about um, political parties in America is definitely going to change, especially with the whole climate change thing. And that's just a whole nother conversation for another day. But it's not necessarily a wasted vote for me. I feel like we have to have more civil discourse about um, the ideals of some of these third parties. Yeah, did you guys else say? Nope. Yeah, so yeah. how- Did you have something to say? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, The Founding Fathers' first idea was to have no parties whatsoever, and then we decided to make political parties, like Republican and Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, the idea of a third party, the reason why less people know of it is because they're not really in the primaries because, you know. 
yeah they don't have much funding or as many people voting for them so they don't get the voice as much yeah that definitely goes back into how these people campaign and the amount of funding that they get and that also stirs back into what um the general topic was was um media bias that cre essentially creates polarized politics because like you said one of the first times that i even knew there was a third party was when i looked on my damn tv screen and saw like the progressive party only got like 13 percent of the vote i'm like oh wow who are they <laughs> like yeah yeah so we under so that you made a great point about the founding fathers um not necessarily wanting there to be any political factions however naturally people separate and have differing opinions but i yeah. want people Democracy is meant to evolve based off the people's needs. And while a wasted vote is a wasted vote, it's not necessarily a wasted ideal. And it irritates me because these, like you said before, these political parties are running off of campaign funds. And that's only because the media focuses on the dichotomy of the two and not necessarily the other ones. While, while it sounds kind of crazy to say that we shouldn't necessarily rely on media and do independent research, independent research is what's essentially going to bring out the best of these third parties and not have them be stigmatized the way that they are you know because people complain about the two-party system but then I think to myself that it's not necessarily an inherent function of our republican democracy is meant to evolve and I do think media plays a large part of it kind of like what Kristen said before it depends on the amount of funding that either will get based off the media attention that they have but I do think that politics are still polarized because people don't necessarily understand that there doesn't have to be an innate two-party system. We can have differing ideals. It doesn't necessarily mean that the whole country's gonna go to crap and anarchy's gonna be everywhere. And, and, and like, yeah, so that's, I just really wanted to talk to you guys about that and um, learn when you guys were first introduced to there being a third party and not just a party, a multitude of other parties. Right. To really get talked about that much. So with that being said, do you guys think that eventually the progressive party is going to take over? Because I do see the Democrats pulling from a lot of their ideals, a lot of ideals from the Green Party and the progressive party. Do you think a third party will ever take over? I think they might actually have a chance only because the close they ever got was last election. Yeah. I think they pulled through at about one to three percent, I believe. Yeah. Were you about to say, Jordan? Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, 50, 60 years down the line, then maybe a candidate from the progressive party will be president. And then that'll be like the first ever thing in history and all that type of stuff. That's pretty much all I got to say. Well, I hope to see the day where that happens. <laughs> like, my kids, back in my day, I only thought, <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. Okay, you guys don't have anything else to say about that or polarized um, politics and media or oh. nothing else to say. What? Okay. So <laughs> fourth topic, which is voting, a very important topic during this political um, season yeah. and 20 session. Now, um, one question I wanted to ask you guys was should the U.S. adopt a new form of voter registration? And I'm going to, you guys probably may already know what this is, but I'm going to introduce our viewers to a term that they may not know. So automatic, um, automatic registration occurs where a, a citizen goes to a public um, agency or office like the DMV and they are automatically registered or they can choose to opt out. And people say that this is very helpful because it 
it makes sure that the people that need to be registered to vote or typically wouldn't find themselves registering to vote are automatically registered to vote when the question is posed to them at the DMV or any other political, I mean, any other federal agency that they go to. Now, um, Georgia is actually very, Georgia is actually very important in this conversation because when we did AVR, our automatic voter registration, we had like a 93% increase um, of people that were vote, uh, registered to vote during 2018 midterms. And that is, that's crazy. Like, I'm wondering why these people weren't voting before. So because of that, do you think that um, AVR or automatic voter registration should be a national mandate? I personally think it should, because that's how, that's how I actually registered to vote. I went to my local DMV and then they, you know, helped me and all that type of stuff and I was registered to vote. Yeah, I think that's pretty much how it should be. And it's much more of a simpler way to do it instead of, hey, you know, fill out such and such and such and such. And there you go. You're you're in. Yeah. yeah. I think it would be a viable option for the future, especially considering not a whole lot of people know how to register, which is why the NAACP and a whole lot of sorority and fraternities have voting events. Yeah, yeah, it definitely. Instagram. I know on Instagram they had like a little register to vote tab and all that type of stuff. When I was watching, I mean, when I was scrolling through it, I was like, okay, this is cool, but just go to your, I mean, and it makes sense because, you know, everyone has Instagram, so it's much easier. But when I went, it was like, okay, you're approved right there. With Every, with Instagram, it was like, okay, it kind of took you like two weeks, you know what I'm saying, to do that. Yeah. I said mine through the mail. Yeah. Yeah, voter registration can be pretty lengthy, and depending on your socioeconomic status, you might not have the time, resources, um, money, vehicle, transportation to be able to get registered, and oftentimes we find people um, obviously needing to go to these federal agencies like the DMV, like maybe to... Um, maybe to like update their license or something. So I think it's perfect for that. However, one con is what I call the California issue where these defunct um, federal agencies like the DMV are, aren't necessarily caught up like technology wise. So they have these computers and computer systems that can't take the flux, um, the fluxation of all these people coming in to get um, automatically registered during the 20, um, during the midterms that there was they had a lot of problems essentially and like one of them being whenever someone would like click on their ballot or like automatically get registered and click with a certain political party um they came back and found out that the people's initial political party wasn't on the final ballot like they registered for a certain political party however the system showed that they were registered with another and some people call it like the dinosaur um issue like these older facilities that can't necessarily take um, these new mandates. So if it were to be nationally mandate, we mandated, we would definitely have to make sure that these facilities are really ready to take an influx of people. And yeah, that's my main issue. We don't, we don't have time for voter fraud. We don't have time for, it looks like you weren't actually registered. Please go back to the DMV. Like I just don't have time for it. We have to- Yeah. yeah. Why are y'all laughing? <laughs> uh, no, because we were laughing. I wonder what happened. No, I'm huh? 
We were no, smiling. Y'all were laughing. That's so funny. Like, yeah. were but um, I guess I'm going to read some stuff out to you guys. All so right. around 15 states have at one point enacted some form of ABR, including Georgia. Okay. Of the states enacted it before the 2018 midterm elections, 2.2 million people were automatically registered. Nearly 6 million have their registration updated. Mm-hmm. And these are people that would have had to actually um, at one point actually go back out and like actually physically registrate for themselves. Like 2.2 million people were registered automatically due to DMV system. That is amazing to me. And Georgia had one of the highest um, registration turnouts. Like we literally were the highest. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, however, the turnout rate of automatic voter registrations was much lower than the overall, like an overall state's turnout. And that poses the question, if people aren't already registered to vote, would they have wanted to vote in the first place? So the opt-out system kind of alleviates that problem because it um, it makes sure that everyone is already automatically registered to vote. And if you don't want to vote, you are, um, if you don't want to vote, you could just opt out. Whereas we have all these people that essentially might need and want to vote, however, they don't have the time to actually go physically register. So I just wanted to read those stats out to you guys because I think it's crazy that nearly like 6 million people have their um, registrations updated through the DMV system. And oftentimes we see people aren't able to vote when they get to the polls because their crap isn't updated and they get turned away. And that's absolutely ridiculous. I think it should be a national mandate. Right. But did you guys have anything else to say? I'm sorry. All right. All right. Well, that finishes this podcast. I think this is like podcast 10, maybe. Eight. Eight. Thank you, Ashanti. All right, everybody. Thank you all for watching the 1025 podcast. I'm Jordan, along with Ashanti and Kristen. I I, I literally pointed at Chris. Fuck it. Ashanti and Kristen, we will see you next time. Peace. Bye.